welcome to iDGen, a podcast about crypto technology, security, and culture with a healthy balance of enthusiasm and skepticism. We dig into a weekly look at crypto, cutting through the misinformation and hype in search of the signal in the noise. What's happening, Zach? How are you feeling this week? I am feeling well. Quite a bit going on, as usual. Love it. How about yourself? Doing well. Uh, this is the third episode. I am recording in Colombia. I'm in Cartagena and uh, we'll be at my home podcasting studio next week. So be excited to be home. But it seems like this week was uh, a little bit calmer than the week before. It would have been almost impossible to top how much stuff was going on last week. But uh, what are you thinking about this week? Yeah, definitely felt a little bit calmer as I was wrapping up all the show notes. I found, uh, let's see, like a last-minute uh, Olympus DAO hack this morning. There's a couple, you know, uh, certainly not the caliber of hacks we saw last week, but interesting topics nonetheless, these uh, Cosmos vulnerabilities. And then, um, you know, not being sure what was going to happen this week, I started digging into the DevCon 6 security talks and reviewing those to see if we could find some cool stuff to talk about, of course. It didn't take long. One of the talks led me down this wild rabbit hole of threat intelligence bots, kind of a topic you and I have been discussing recently, although I wasn't even aware that these things existed. So I went down that rabbit hole and we can get into that as well. I love it. I feel like you dove deep into some DevCon talks and you might be ahead of me in how much content you've consumed from DevCon. Even though I was at the event, I was just, you know, distracted by a million different things and events I was putting on. So I'm excited to uh, hear what your thoughts were on some of those talks and, and find out about this rabbit hole that you went down. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, I only, I've highlighted three that we're going to talk about today. A few others that I listened to that um, they were they were nice, they were cool, didn't hit as hard for me as these other three. And I think that puts me at like six out of 27 of the security talks alone. And that doesn't even cover a lot of the zero knowledge stuff that I really want to get into. So there, it's going to be a, ne- a fun next couple of weeks and, and maybe the hacking will calm down. So I'll have more time to dig into that stuff. But uh, with that, um, let's just jump in. A couple of events of interest coming up. I noticed uh, going down my rabbit hole this week, these Forda bots, threat intelligence bots from, it looks like from the team at Open Zeppelin, they actually have a challenge going on right now. You can win $3,000 for first place, $1,000 for runner up. And this is for developing a Forda bot. There's a specific set of criteria around what to develop. So just a quick note, if you're into this, look, check that out. We've got ETH Lisbon coming up, and that's the 28th through the 30th of October. Oh, sorry, I should mention for the FortiBot competition, uh, important, the the dates there, you've got to have a submission in by November 1st. So the clock is ticking, and they're going to take the first 10 submissions and then close the the competition. But as of yesterday, it was still open. So um, That's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah, the um, when we if we get in more into the bots, I can talk about the competition a little. At first, I was super jazzed on it, but then it's like it's a very specific criteria. Um, it's kind of looking at contextual information for for alerts that are getting generated um, with the bots, and yeah, cool nonetheless. But I'm not sure if I'm gonna jump in head first on that one. So 
Let's see. Why don't we dig into the weekly news? Hey, quickly before we do that, Hunt, did you listen to the uh, new show intro music last week? Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. You're always making fun tweaks to the logos and intro music. Uh, nice work with that. Oh, thanks. I was just, um, I had a lot of fun making that beat and mixing that one up. And it's one of those things where it's like, it starts to sound really cool in my head and I don't know how it plays, but I'm getting some good feedback. So let me know what you guys think of that. You notice it's the same underlying tune, but I've just kind of remixed it into like this weird trap style. And, uh, okay, let's jump in the weekly news and headlines of interest. One of the more interesting hacks of the week, this was October 18th, 4.04 PM UTC, another market manipulator, another price manipulator. This is this time on Moolah markets and on the CeeLo blockchain. So a uh, little starting to see some, some more of these hacks getting outside of Ethereum onto some of the other chains. In this particular case, what we have was initially the attacker funded the account with some CeeLo, roughly $180,000 worth. They supplied some of that in order to borrow some of the protocol's native token, Moo. And then the Moo could be used itself as collateral to borrow against other assets. So then they used the remaining CeeLo to buy Moo on OobSwap. The attacker pumped the price of their Moo collateral, allowing them to borrow all the remaining assets on the protocol, draining all liquidity. Looks like semi-happy ending here. The attacker returned $9 million in exchange for a reward. Uh, if I recall, that was a good percentage of the overall attack. I don't know. This is probably just semantics, but something I wanted to point out, a lot of the normal media that's picking up and reporting on these hacks, you know, they're saying, oh, they claimed a bug bounty. I Technically speaking, I don't think it's accurate to say if you hack a protocol and you're not following a bug bounty program and you, you get, they, they end up, you know, cutting a deal with you. You're not, it's not a bug bounty. That's just, it's just not, it's like a, yeah, you know, it's got to exist before the, before the hack takes place. But I feel like it's a good PR spin for the company and for the hacker. Cause then they get to say they, they found a bug and got a bounty and the company gets to like act like they planned this the whole time, even though it was probably an unintended exploit. Yeah. I mean, even if they, maybe even if it necessarily isn't that the company planned it, it's, um, you know, just kind of like a semantic thing. Like it's not a bug bounty. It's like a hack bounty or something. I don't know. But, um, as we'll see in a bit, a lot of the hacks this week actually have semi happy endings and, and some didn't, uh, not even hacks at all, but I love uh, it. Yeah, we'll get there a um, couple stories down when we get into the Cosmos stuff. But the next one on the list, one of the Mango Markets manipulators. So last week, Mango Markets was owned for quite a bit of money. Don't remember the total U.S. dollar denomination. We talked about it but the on the show. But the um, one of the manipulators came out publicly and has turned themselves essentially into a meme. And uh, they said, hey, I was simply deploying a highly profitable trading strategy. And uh, that was October 15th. And then later on October 18th, 
this same gentleman on Twitter proposed a solution uh, to make lending protocols more robust, less susceptible to price manipulation attacks. And um, it's certainly worth discussing. So what this guy says at uh, Avi Eisen, you can check in the show notes and uh, for, for the link to his um, tweet or whatever, but uh, a simple way to make lending protocols more robust. Notice he doesn't say secure. <laughs> Store a 24-hour rolling historical oracle price. For liquidations, use the current price. But for opening a new position, it has to be valid under both the current and the old price. So um, I love this. This is the evolution of you know, DeFi. This is, I've been saying it for a while. This is going to be looked at in years to come as like the golden era of DeFi hacking. I'm feel very confident in that. And these types of mechanisms as they, as these exploits are taken advantage of, and we can dig into that, like, you know, whether or not it's a, an exploit or just the protocol working as intended, but, um, you know, as these these things happen, the op optimistic view is that we are going to develop new mechanisms, and ultimately this will strengthen the foundations. And it'll be like, yeah, no, you if you're going to operate that type of protocol, it's well known and established that you need a mechanism to prevent price manipulation attacks. And I think it's it's going to have to happen fast, right? With the amount of money at stake, this this <laughs> I mean, as as a protocol, you're going to go broke. Or you're gonna evolve and implement more secure mechanisms. Yeah, it'll be a survival of the fittest, in my opinion. And yeah, by indeed. fittest, I mean most secure. And and what's your take on on this conversation that has been ignited, where one side says that this is these are not hacks or attacks. You know, this is simply a highly profitable trading strategy. Someone you know took advantage of. Um, they observed some interesting circumstances and, and took advantage of those. Yeah, it's such a thin line and it's hard to see exactly where because I see both sides of the argument. You know, they're not like sticking a, a gun to somebody's head or they're not breaking into the back of, you know, their account and stealing from them. They are finding an exploit, but I think they know good and well while they're doing it that it's not moral or it's not right thing to do and i think it helps them sleep at night by saying it's not a hack and an exploit but you know i think that when the intentions are malicious then it's probably a malicious act what do you think so later on we're going to look at a devcon talk on um degen bridge hacking and the woman talks about the economic risk factor is, is, you know, assessing the bridge security, assessing bridge security, like in the context um, of, of bridges. But here, I think that it's, it's a similar thing. And so it's not a traditional hack in a sense that code was exploited, but it's certainly an exploitation of an economic mechanism. I think we can say with a high degree of confidence that no one operating that protocol or lending to the pools on that protocol intended you know, for that particular um, type of advanced trading, highly profitable trading strategy, right? So it's an economic exploit, or as we've kind of talked about in, in trying to find the name for these types of attacks, you know, kind of like the game theoretical attack. But I think economic attack or economic exploit is probably like I'm leaning towards that 
making the most sense in my head as a way to describe it. Cause I really, I just, it's, it's not the intent um, of the protocol designers and users for this to happen. It's an unintended consequence. So in, in that, if it, you know, um, in that regard, whether, you know, it's a vulnerability in the code, it's, it's really a vulnerability in the economic, um, what do you, what would you call that? The economic design, right? Yeah. I mean, I always try to bring things back to like a logical thought in my head of like comparing it to something else. And I would compare this to like, if a bank were to build a vault and then they realized that they had left some bricks loose on the backside of that vault and somebody could go around and wiggle them and kind of get in, is it still stealing because they didn't really make their vault, you know, secure? I don't know if that's the best analogy, but in the end, I think if it's still the, they knew that taking these funds was not the right thing to do and that, you know, it was hurting somebody. Yeah. It's not a yep. victimless crime. No, I agree. And when he came out, you know, in his tweet saying, this is not illegal. I just, you know, implemented a highly profitable trading strategy. My first thought was this guy did not consult with legal counsel first. This is somebody running around in their head going, wait a minute okay, this could actually be really considered illegal, some type of a, a hack. And I'm just going to get ahead of this thing by saying, no, it's not illegal. And I'm, I'm thinking, I cannot imagine that that fellow sought legal counsel. And I don't know, I, it's going to take a lot of time. The legal system works slowly in many cases to see how some of these DeFi attacks play out. But I, I just have a feeling that these that um, maybe in, in this fellow in particular, I don't think he's going to just get away. You know, somebody's going to be upset and is going to come after him. Who knows what yeah. happens from there? Um, OK, what do you think? Shall we move on? Let's do it. All right. October 13th. IBC. That's the Cosmos. Um, the the uh, Cosmos stuff. Security advisor Dragonberry. Critical security vulnerability impacts all IBC enabled Cosmos chains. And uh, from, let's see, then from the, the post, this was originally posted to the Cosmos um, network forums. The chain is safe from the critical vulnerability as soon as one third of its voting power has applied the patch. Change chains should still seek to patch as two thirds to two thirds as quickly as possible once the official patch is released. So I'm looking into that. And what I really wanted to know is what the vulnerability was and could not find anything on it. And it, it was just vulnerability has been patched, everybody upgrade and no reports of it being exploited in the wild. But when I finally found my way to the Cosmos network forums where the original post was made, I noticed someone else posting and saying, hey, is this related to, to this issue? And so that was, mm, let's see, a couple days before on October 8th, five days before on October 8th, this was a, a tweet. And uh, recently the Core Cosmos team became aware of a high severity vulnerability that impacts all users of the IAVL Merkle proof verification system. Um, okay. Uh, sorry, that wasn't the one I meant to read. 
there was a, I jumped ahead. So, okay. So there's three issues in question here. The, the tweet, this is from Verichains and this is on October 12th. Verichains has discovered a new critical security vulnerability in the Cosmos library can be exploited to steal money from vulnerable cross-chain bridge. We've shared the details, Cosmos and Binance are coordinating to fix. Okay. So that's the second one that I found. And then if you go back to October 8th, then that's the one I just read about the Merkle um, issue, Merkle proof verification issue. And the really interesting thing there, of course, is you might recall the root of the Binance chain hack was related to improper Merkle proof validation. So I, what I, it it looks like a bit of a rough week for these guys. However, really not so much, right? Because they, they're uncovering these vulnerabilities internally or from outside security firms and they're getting them patched and there's no exploitation that I've seen against these in the wild. And um, so that's, that's pretty great. You know, a lot of times here we're, we're talking about the hacks after they've occurred and sure it's not as sensational and, and interesting necessarily to talk about vulnerabilities that have been proactively discovered and patched, but it's also relevant. And one of the articles I did find in Cointelegraph about this, they went out of their way to note that there are fewer attacks have taken place on Cosmos. And I'm interested in digging more into that and understanding why. I've been more curious about the Cosmos ecosystem in the past six months than I have ever before. There's a lot of really cool things going on there, I think. And this this discussion about where and why hacks occur can be very misleading. And an easy example is that, you know, back in the early 2000s, people loved to talk about how terribly insecure Windows was and all this malware just goes after Windows, but if you use a Mac, you're safe. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with market share. And and really it comes down to this simple principle of like, where is the, um, where, where's the money? Where, when, when you're hacking, you know, are you going to dedicate your time and effort into hacking Macs when back then Mac usage was, was a lot lower than it is now, right? And the answer is no, right? It was, you know, most people were on Windows. And so that's a good part. That's a huge reason why we saw so much malware and things targeted specifically at Windows. And I wonder if this is a similar case where, you know, it doesn't quite have the TVL of Ethereum or... Is it that at the foundations, you know, more time and effort has been put into security or um, I don't know. The foundation of Ethereum itself is not insecure, but the applications being built on Ethereum with very high TVLs we have seen repeatedly being, you know, demolished. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes of that. Yeah, I have a question for you on that. Like, you know, you mentioned that the hack didn't take place in the wild, that you had trouble finding kind of evidence of this hack and had to kind of dive deep and find on the forums what went on. Is that intentional? Are they kind of taking that away so uh, a malicious hacker doesn't really have a playbook to kind of exploit this on Cosmos again or on Ethereum? And is, is that something that just is happening in the Cosmos ecosystem? Yeah, that's a good question. Here, here's what I anticipate. Because it was uh, kind of what we call an O-Day vulnerability, if it's not known yet and it's getting ready to be patched, then there is 
good reason to not publicly release details of exactly where and what that is until things are patched. And so I would, and, you, and then you could say, hey, well, that makes sense. So then they should publish all the information afterwards. And, and yeah, that would be great. We'd love to see it. Uh, it's open source, I, as I understand it. So I'm sure we could go out and look at the patches and you know see exactly what's done. And I'm sure someone will. So whether or not Cosmos is going to come out with a full explanation and write up now, you know, you got to put yourself in their shoes. Sure, that's the the right thing to do, so to speak, but they're busy. They've got a lot going on. It might not be their highest priority, you know. They may be looking for other bugs. One thing I did notice with this is that one of the researchers and I um I'm thinking of reaching out to this guy because I would love to see if we could talk to him about this, but this Merkle root vulnerability, I want to know if it was, I know that after the Binance chain bridge attack, I know that Cosmos started heavily going over everything and that's how they uncovered at least one of these bugs. But it seems from what I read, like this other one was coincidentally discovered. So that'd be really interesting. And I would love to talk to the guy that um, put this IAVL Merkle proof um, range proof update in place and see, but that would be for another time. We should probably keep moving as it turns out, it was a, a relatively slow week volume wise for attacks, but definitely not a shortage of attacks. This one, um, didn't get a lot of time to dig into it, but I haven't seen this mentioned too many places. So I certainly wanted to bring it up. We've got the Ray network DeFi uh, ecosystem for Cardano. And the one of the interesting things about this attack, October 2nd and October 10th, they're calling it the Franken attack. On October, October uh, I'm sorry, 3rd and 10th, an attacker attacked Raystake by spoofing a stake key in the payment address, causing the vending machine to send rewards of a specific stake key to the attacker's address. This is coming directly from the Ray Network Medium post. Uh, post-mortem on the attack, the attacker accessed a total of some five and a half million X-rays, 112 X diamonds. He sold these funds through mini swap decks and Sunday swap in exchange for just over 400,000 ADA. So at the time of this writing, that was worth $139,000 worth of USD. So, um, you know, that's, uh, you don't hear a lot of DeFi attacks on Cardano. I no, don't. you're giving us Cosmos and Cardano today. Just equal opportunity uh, presenting on all these hacks. Yeah, CeeLo and Cardano. We'll, we'll give uh, Cosmos the, the out, right? Because they, they caught this stuff before it got hacked. But True. Um, yeah, yeah, CeeLo and Cardano. And then this is, uh, again, I want to spend some time with this one because this Franken- <laughs> something to do with the addresses and the way the stake addresses, you can add a key. You can put multiple keys in there to share the stake and things not familiar with it and not the largest attack, but we like to, to surface them all here and help you stay aware of what's going on. So if you want to see one of the recent Cardano attacks, look into that Ray network attack, the Franken attack. And, um, 
another littler one next with the Olympus Dow, right? It's uh, it, yes. it doesn't seem like those crazy hundreds of millions, but it's still a hack and it's still worth talking about. Indeed. And in this specific case, this was this is unfolding just a f- couple hours before we recorded this on Friday, October 21st. So I don't have a ton of information. Peck Shield drops a tweet. The an Olympus Dow bond pool drained of roughly 300,000. And it looks like an improper validation bug. So there was a function and it didn't properly validate the parameters coming into that function. And uh, hey, happy ending here. Within six hours, the attacker had returned all the stolen tokens. And now what it says is that the team, this is coming from an article in the block, the team successfully tracked the perpetrator after which the hacker agreed to return the funds. The spokesman for Olympus Dow told the block. So who knows? I'm seeing more of those and more of this like, oh, well, once they found out that they were doxxed or tracked, but I I don't know. I I would love to know the details of of how they doxxed and tracked them or to what degree. Um, Either way, when you mentioned that was a smaller hack, this is because this bond protocol contract was still in testing and they knew that it was being battle tested. So they intentionally left a smaller amount of funds in there. I also read somewhere that the bug bounty that you could collect for for attacking this uh, or you know for finding a vulnerability in this was higher. I wasn't able to confirm that, but I read that in the uh, ETH security channel and I thought it was super interesting because you know if you could get more money legitimately through the bounty, you know, um, this this raises some new questions, I think, about how bug hunting and bounties work when you have a DeFi protocol. And if you discover an attack and you want to submit to the bug bounty program, you don't hear back quickly or the process takes a while or they require KYC and you don't you're not comfortable doing KYC, any of these these types of things like what do you do? You know, do you just do you own it? Um, what we're seeing is that people own it and they negotiate their their bounty. I would send all of it back personally. And I'd be like, here, I, w- I would I would hack it and then send it all back and say, here's another address for me. Whatever you want to send me, send me, but it's up to you. But slippery slope, not a slope that I want to be on. I like to sit back here safely as a commentator. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. I would love to be a fly on the wall in some of those negotiations because I'm sure those conversations are start out very interesting and frantic and then end up uh, somewhat civil. You know, they start out talking like they're enemies and, you yeah. know, one person just owned them. And in the end, it's probably like, well, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Here's 30% of that money you just stole or whatever that may be. But I like your idea about letting the protocol or whoever the company is decide how much they send you. So it doesn't feel like you're kind of blackmailing them or holding them for ransom. 100%. Hold move it if it's one of those cases where you really you you can't report it safely uh grab the cash grab the coins and immediately even in the transaction just state you know i'm anon white hat and i'm going to give this all back uh yeah i don't know and then hope for the best from there still i bet even under those circumstances depending you could still get in trouble but it's so it's so crazy with with 
DeFi and these protocols. I mean, the Computer Abuse and Fraud Act of 1996, is, as I understand it, dictates a lot of um, these things. But uh, uh, sorry, my phone um, forgot to turn on Do Not Disturb. You're so popular. You just always get with Oh, no, it's the same person calling me over and over, and I've closed that oh. app. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So uh, moving on. Next and last on the news of the week, two men sentenced to roughly two years for crypto sim swapping scheme. Uh, if you really like the cyber crime news, go to Chainalysis and sign up for their newsletter. This is this is where I get a lot of this stuff. You want to see like the links to the Justice Department write ups and everything. That's where this one came from. This is according to court documents, uh, Migs. Migs and Harrington targeted executives of cryptocurrency companies and others who likely had significant amounts of cryptocurrency and those who had high value or quote OG social media account names. So if you're an OG holder, they were going after you. We've talked about this. I just, the only reason I mention it is SIM swapping, definitely something that you want to be on the on the lookout for i read something we're trying to get this guy's a guest on the show i don't know uh i haven't heard back from him in a little bit so it's not looking great but there was a guy who posted last week on this who was talking about how you can call your providers and explicitly state that you need certain documents or special steps to be taken in order for your phone to be ported your your sim to be ported over and, uh, you know, someone pointed out, well, yeah, of course, but still someone at the phone company could choose to ignore those, you know, those additional <clears throat> stipulations. But as an extra layer of defense, if you are an OG crypto holder, um, maybe consider upping that with some manual one-off protections. Not much more yeah. to that. Uh, the only other thing is that uh, two years, like, seems low. I think didn't see dollar amounts for what they hacked, but that sounds to me a lot like a low sentence, most likely for cooperation. A lot of those SIM swappers work in rings and groups. So who knows? Just speculation there, but uh, two years seems like a good point. I I got the same reaction of two years seeming like a small amount considering people do some more serious time for, you know, robbing somebody of, 60 bucks on the street yeah it's more violent of a crime but yeah the, I, I didn't think about that they were probably cooperating and that makes a lot of sense um yeah that that was a good uh rundown of those weekly stories and i, I gotta be honest with you zach i it, it's like a sigh of relief compared to last week i, I kind of had some anxiety after we finished last week's episode and just all the things that were going down but you know y- you got some nice light and fluffy stories in there about you know the the hackers getting caught who are sim swapping and people returning funds and people catching funds before you know a hacker in the wild is finding them so you know it's it's not all doom and gloom on id gen we're getting some uh some good stuff and some things to be optimistic about here so hopefully we have more weeks like this to come no doubt no doubt and uh it's nice to see the funds getting returned on these hacks maybe we're at sort of like a turning point um, I know there's no way we are indefinitely like, you know, hackers are just going to get nice and give everything back. But the other thing is that we could see, a, you know, some white hat crew emerge with ethics that, uh, 
you know, push them towards returning all the funds and they just go out there and, and, uh, kind of like the flashbots guys and who knows. So, um, let's get into some of these, um, DevCon talks from DevCon six and yeah, security gem talk hunt. Here's what I found. First one I want to go through rug life using blockchain analytics to detect illicit activity and protect yourself. This was presented by Heidi Wilder, a special investigations. Uh, she works special investigations at Coinbase. I tried to get a link to her Twitter, which I couldn't find. In doing that, I found that she also used to work at Elliptic, the firm. I think they were bought by MasterCard. I could be wrong about that or acquired by MasterCard. Um, but, uh, so I think that she's been doing this for a little while, different companies certainly knows her stuff. There's a lot of cool takeaways. The talk abstract is essentially saying, learn how to use blockchain analytics to identify and protect yourself from the latest rugs, hacks, and scams. The purpose of the talk is to discuss how to automatically identify illicit activity on the blockchain typologies of rugs, hacks, and scams and tracing where the funds have gone. That is the part that I found to be the most interesting was getting insights into how they trace funds and just hearing her talk through the investigations of a couple different ones, the detection methods. One of the things she said that caught my attention was that they simply have alerts that monitor for large flows of funds and that a note to developers, they should be monitoring what's going on with their contracts. So you'll notice this is going to be a central theme. It'll we'll hit on it in the threat intel bots talk as well, and it's uh, it's yeah. So um, let's see, detecting weird stuff in advance. So that is it's. You think about if a smart contract, if someone's trying to hack it, what are the chances that they get it on the first try with just one transaction, right? Um, a lot of times it takes more than one transaction. One of these talks they were talking about, I think it's like 40% of the time or something, 40 or 50%, it takes more than one. But um, even if they don't get it right then and there, can you detect and, and monitor your contracts and, and see weird transactions, right? So the idea is pretty simple that someone should be monitoring. And um, what she says is that Nomad would have seen weird stuff going back to July and probably could have prevented it. So that's a bold statement. And um, Hunt, you did link me on the Nomad talk from DevCon. I didn't get a chance to dig into that. I, I have that high on the list. So maybe next week, there's a, a looks like a really awesome talk on a postmortem from someone at the Nomad team about that hack. But yeah, according to Heidi, uh, there was some, some interesting potential sketchy transactions happening ahead of time on Nomad going all the way back to July. Um, this was a point that I pulled out of the talk that I, that stood out because it's a theme that we talk about almost every week. She said, use caution with Twitter investigators during the mango markets price manipulation. She saw various addresses being thrown out that weren't actually involved in the hack and our ongoing conversation is to be wary of what you see, you know, not, not just, Hey, don't trust anything. Right. But just like if you're, if you're watching some of these security researchers on Twitter, you know, just because they have a lot of likes, just because an address gets thrown out there, just, you know, 
maybe keep it in the back of your head that there's a lot of unknowns. And, you know, in this particular case, there were innocent people's addresses getting thrown out there. Um, probably doesn't have a serious impact beyond this small community of researchers and people paying attention to crypto security right now. But I think that, you know, as we are dealing with cancel culture and mobs and all these things, we just need to be especially careful paying too much attention. So anyways, there's my rant on that. She did a really cool look at tracing the Ronin funds and it's, it's absurd. Like they go into tornado cash, they go into, um, uh, into Ren, the Ren bridge into Bitcoin and then back into Ethereum. And how would they be tracing them out of tornado cash? You ask, uh, according to her, it, I think goes back to this idea of large movements of funds. So, you know, there just aren't a lot of, I think, let me choose my words carefully here. There aren't a lot of illegal tornado cash users moving hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe that's a fair statement, or it sounds like kind of what, what they're saying or what she sees there at Coinbase. So, um, it's cool that Coinbase has a team investigating these these attacks. I guess they are responsible, right, to see then if one of these addresses 10 hops down the road starts sending funds to them. They, instead of relying 100% on third-party firms to tell them, hey, that might be malicious, they're doing it themselves. So I guess that's why she, you know, their team would be researching these. Two other points. Social engineering attacks are a common thread is the initial attack vector, particularly from nation states. A specific nation state is known to use this. This came up. There was articles this week on this um, security agency in Japan talking about this as well. So phishing attacks, phishing attacks, social engineering, phishing is a prime way that North Korea and she didn't say North Korea, but um that was what was implied, uh, have, have used to get in and we've seen it time and time again. Um, oh, here, here's the bullet point. I've already kind of talked about this. Privacy protocols are relatively easy to track enormous volume attackers through, uh, simply because they're moving so much at once. So, um, doesn't sound like they have any kind of actual way to, um, de anonymize tornado cash but they're just looking at large volumes and, and making some very educated guesses based on behavior. Okay. Um, yeah. So that one was fun. If you're into blockchain forensics, I would highly recommend checking that one out. What do you think? Any questions Hunter? or should we move on to the next? Too many questions to even really get into, but yeah, I feel like it's just a game of cat and mouse a little bit with, you know, if they realize that uh, sending large, large transactions to tornado cash are, kind of making things a little bit more hot and obvious on them, they'll probably just adjust their strategy pretty quickly. Yeah. The, I think the challenge would be if you're trying to move a hundred million dollars and you're going to need a, a larger team, it's more people to trust smaller transactions, lots of them, lots of different strategies. It's um, I, I think you're probably right. Like it'll go that way, but 
I don't know. I don't have a great deal of knowledge about how organized crime or nation states launder money, but I did watch a documentary recently on a narco trafficker from South Korea operating in South America for a while. And there's a lot, you know, it's, I think it's easier said than done, right? To, to, when you're working with these types of folks, if you need a team of a hundred trusted money launderers, you got to trust that they're not stealing from you, that they know what they're doing, that they're not going to get fished. So, um, but yeah, uh, we'll see. I certainly do expect and agree that they will evolve. And that's a um, common theme for why a lot of these regulations around anti-money laundering don't work is because it's just a constant as quickly as they make a regulation, people go around it. The old regulations stay, but they aren't really doing anything to stop it anymore. So it's certainly a um, tricky situation. Okay. Next talk, cross-chain security considerations for the DGEN and all of us. This was done by Lane Haber and uh, connects. I think she works at, I was, I was so jazzed up on this talk. It was so good, I thought, and I went, I was checking out their website. They have this really cool research position open. So if you like what you hear, um, I don't know. I thought about applying for it, but then I was like, oh, I don't know if I want a job And um, right now. And so I, I don't know, but uh, th this was a really awesome talk. And uh, cross-chain applications are often considered too risky. This viewpoint is divorced from reality. People will use these applications, and it's our responsibility to understand the security implications. Cross-chain app developers must be able to reason about concurrency and asynchrony across different across two different networks, as well as understand the trust assumptions introduced by the data transport layer. By understanding this, we can allow users to engage in risky behavior in the safest way. Just that just the, the abstract alone. It's, it just, um, it makes so much sense and really sets the foundation. So let's hit through some of the interesting points that I found in the talk. Um, contagion risk, she mentions, and this is sort of what we've been talking about when um, we're talking about economic attacks or game theoretical attacks, uh, market, you know, um, manipulation, price, manipulation and things like that. So I wasn't totally sure what contagion risk meant in that context. I looked it up generally in economics. A contagion is the spread of an economic crisis from one financial institution, market, or region to another. So applicable here would be region probably. And if we're looking at how um, financial risk spreads from a bridge, right? You have multiple chains involved. And uh, this is the future. If blockchain technology does persist and crypto makes it, it's, there's no way it's going to be one or two chains. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of them and they're going to need to talk. So I feel like this is probably one of the most relevant. And I think that folks at Ethereum probably feel the same way because it looks like there are, there's a number of talks on this. There was a, um, I'm not going to get into that one, but there's a panel discussion on bridge security as well. Um, anyways, going back through Lane's talk here, um, bridges are hard, so it's just not something easy to do in the context of bridges. She gets really in depth and I, 
I don't have a solid understanding of how all these bridges work. So this was super informative to me. You have um, native verified bridges, externally verified bridges, or optimistically verified. So that latter option, of course, uses proofs to verify. And um, it uh, turns out to also, I think, be one of the most secure at this point. And uh, validation of consensus and state transitions is coming soon. And that will likely be the gold standard, but it's not quite ready for prime time yet, she said. So that to me means we're, we're, we're on the way, but bridges just aren't, the, if the gold standard, you know, the future gold standard isn't being actively implemented yet or used yet, then we're still pretty early. And I'm not saying that in the, you know, the crypto context of like, oh, we're just, you know, I was trying to get rich. We're still early, that kind of thing. But just, <laughs> you know, we're, we're early in the context of the technology itself alone on bridges. So um, what would that mean? And then she, you know, brilliantly then goes into what users should be, how, you know, users should understand and look at bridge security. Um, sorry, first she breaks it down and talks about um, the different types of security and risk with bridges, economic security, that's what we talked about a little bit earlier, implementation security, environmental security. So economics is how would it, how much would it cost to corrupt your system? The implementation is like, how complex is the implementation of your system, the dev environment? Are you doing audits, fuzzing? So that's a lot of the, the traditional um, security mechanisms are going into that bucket. And then um, environmental is how can your system handle underlying domains with low economic security? So kind of like, how do you, um, if you're bridging between, if you have a bridge from a network that doesn't have high volume and it's coming into your network, you know, how are, can you handle potentially, you know, insecure input? So, um, those are the parameters and, um, the winner is environmental security and, uh, the, I'm sorry, the winner Environmental security optimistic is number one and down the road. So um, I'm not doing a great job. I don't feel like I'm explaining this. So I think I'm going to leave it at you should go watch this talk if you're into bridge security because she just um, it, it's just really well done. Um, one thing that she brought up was why are we seeing so many hacks? And she said, we have new teams. They're resource constrained and shortcuts are being taken. All three of those make perfect sense to me to create sort of this really not great environment security wise. And that's, um, you know, uh, that makes sense, right? So what can users do? Practical considerations. And um, she talks about some of the different things that users should be looking at. How long are you going to be exposed to the risk? How much money has your bridge secured and for how long? She notes that an upgrade to a bridge kind of resets the Lindy effect or the Lindy principle, which is that idea that, or a theorem here from Wikipedia, the Lindy effect is a theorized phenomenon by which the future life expectancy of some non-perishable things like a technology or idea is proportional to their current age. So the longer something's been up, the more secure it is, or the, not, not say the more secure it is, but the more likely it will um, exist longer into the future. But 
that gets reset with an upgrade. An upgrade. So be aware of that, right? If it's a bridge that's been trusted for a long time, months, years, high volume, but an update was done recently, those, you know, just, just pay attention to that. And then uh, she talks about sort of like the social elements of who works there and is it Anon or not. I don't think she said that specifically, but that's, you know, my take on it, right, is, is can you trust the team? And um, yeah, really, really awesome talk. I think you did a great job explaining all that. I think it's really hard to take a 30 minute talk with tons of slides and lots of dense information and important information and, and nail it down into three minutes on our show. So I'm, I'm thinking you're doing a great job, man. I wouldn't say anything negative about yourself on, uh, on that. So keep it up, brother. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> let's, let's move on then. Cause what, um, I really wanted to get into decentralized threat detection bots. This was presented by Jonathan Alexander, the CTO of Open Zeppelin and also the co-founder at the Forda Network. Never heard of Forda before this talk, and this is the rabbit hole that I went down. In abstract for the talk, decentralized threat detection bots are a recent area of research and development for protecting the ecosystem. This talk will cover concepts and the recent research on detection bots and implementation patterns, including heuristic-based, time series, multi-block, and transaction simulation. Examples involving prior exploits will be included, tools, limitations, potential for automated threat prevention, and areas of further research. Um, this, yeah, this one was so good too. I mean, there's, it's just mind-blowing to me how um, all-encompassing you know, uh, these guys are, this guy specifically, I guess, and how he sees all the different parts involved and is able to articulate it. So let's jump right in. Multiple leading security and audit firms are beginning to make recommendations on post-deployment smart contract auditing. So um, Open Zeppelin, Consensus, and others are, it's, they're recommending as a part of their audits now, you should be actively monitoring. So if you'll recall, that was also a recommendation from uh, the girl at Coinbase, right? That we should be proactively monitoring. You know, I mean, this is pretty obvious. Like, uh, it, it's just important. You know, we, we've been monitoring other systems, you know, previous to, to blockchain, like monitoring was a huge thing right? Log analysis and monitoring, all that real-time monitoring. So it's actually coming down now is like, you need to be monitoring this stuff, have a pause button. He mentioned in case something happens, you see some strange transactions, pause it, take that, you know, take that route. Um, let's see, I've got a list here that's pretty wordy and long that I'm going to skip. If you are, um, yeah, hit our show notes as always. I try to put a lot in there and, um, you can go read those, um, related to, uh, a lot of the different factors on <clears throat> assessing the, I think it's assessing on the security of the, um, of the contracts and, um, okay. Uh, smart contract attack stages. So they break it down into four main stages. There's the funding. So that's a new account set up, a mixer, um, a sex, a bridge transfer. I heard people calling it in these talks a sex, CEX. I always would have just called it a central exchange. It's a sex. 
All right. Um, preparation is the second stage. Contract deployment. So a lot of smart contracts are attacked with other contracts. And so that second stage is when those contracts get deployed. Third is the actual exploitation. Maybe it's a flash loan, transfers, flash bots, reentrancy. More than half of the attacks are non-atomic. And what that means is that more than one transaction is used. So there's, it's really important because what he has found and what they're finding with these bots is that they can actually detect a lot of those non-atomic attacks. If there's a series of transactions and you can proactively identify the beginning of the chain of attacks or one of these early stages, right? We're, you know, this is, um, this is the evolution of crypto and security defense. It's, um, it's really cool stuff, I think. Anyways, the fourth stage is laundering. And we've already looked into and talked about a talk on that. And so those are the four stages. That's important because these threat detection bots then can, you know, understand their role in that bigger picture of the, the whole attack life cycle. And, um, this one, again, this one was so good. These guys have, they are, they're actually, um, let's see, fraud-based attacks like ice fishing can predict, they can predict them with 95% precision with heuristics. So I, that is, that is mind blowing to me. And immediately my head starts going towards, well, how, how are they doing this? And if they can do this hunt two weeks ago, I think on the show, we talked about this idea of like, oh, if you were monitoring the mempool and you could identify a potentially malicious transaction on its way to attack and you could then act on that information. I mean, you, you could, you, you would essentially be front running the attack, right? Definitely. And so as it turns out, um, this is not happening at the mempool level with the Forda network yet, but they've built this whole network of decentralized bots. This is really eye opening to me. Um, let's see, they describe them as Forda as a real time detection network for security and operational monitoring of the blockchain. A little upsetting. They did an airdrop, which I had eligible accounts apparently, but I missed it. So I'm, I'm late to this party. Um, but uh, yeah, so they've been around for about a year working on this. They have all kinds of great bot examples, including ones that are using machine learning models to look for things like smart price change notifications and detectors, time series analyzers, contract destructors. Um, there's a lot of challenges to the approach. He notes this is not a Kool-Aid style talk at all. This guy is like really giving and, and laying it down. He talks about atomic attacks being a challenge. So that would be an attack where it takes place with a single transaction, not a series. Private transactions make things harder. Um, monitoring secrecy. So this decentralized network of bots, as we're going to talk about here, is when you create a bot on the uh, Forda network, these alerts get bubbled up and everyone can see them. There's this awesome dashboard, and we're going to jump in here in a second and look. You can see um, all these, what people are looking at. It's, it's brilliant. But um, with that, Monitoring secrecy is also simultaneously a challenge because maybe you want to monitor your network privately or your contracts. And if you notice suspicious behavior, you don't want that being broadcast to the larger, um, you know, to the whole world or the, you know, few people that are paying attention to this 
network, small number, I'm sure, not a few. I'm sure there's more than that, but um, this is not uh, not probably as exciting as uh, House of the Dragon for, for most people. But um, on-chain alerts is a is another area. Oh, sorry, that's future research. Response latency was one of the other challenges he mentions. And um, yeah, so future areas of research, private scan pools, memory, uh, the mempool scanning hunt, that's what we were talking about. So I don't know. I love this, uh, that, that this is something that's, that's happening and then on chain alerts. So that would be cool, right? If you can detect these things with a decentralized network of bots and you can respond online or, you know, on chain to it. So, uh, that would be excellent. Anyways, let's take a quick jump into this explore.forda.network is the page and, um, not too noisy. In the last 24 hours, I only see about five or six alerts. We see Aragon ACL. So ACL is an access control list. Aragon ACL permission revoked. So that's a medium severity alert. We see a critical alert. Complete delegation failed. And doesn't say what protocol that's on. Um, the next one, large Binance BNBX unstake. Uh, I'm just going to read through the list so you can get an idea of the type of alerts. Start under delegation failed, sanctioned address 10 hours ago. That's a high severity. So, you know, someone's interacting with the sanctioned address, you know, something of that nature. And you can date, you can click into these to dig in. Um, here's one, a high vulnerability, significant curve, wrapped ETH, ST ETH, pool size chain. And uh, another high C token exchange rate alert. So um, there's a high one for a flash loan detected. So you can see all, all these things are, uh, all, people are creating these bots. They're monitoring for these different conditions. Um, they support like seven different networks, I think. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yep. Um, and it's, I, you know, I mean, could you act on this? Yeah. I Definitely. Right. And I'm, I have a feeling people are. So, of course, I want to see if I can. Uh, I would love to successfully execute a trade based on one of these. <laughs> this is a whole rabbit hole. It's a pretty sweet dashboard. If uh, anybody's interested, check out the show notes because I recommend anybody checking it out. It's just pretty slick. And it's uh, definitely something that I could see Zach spending hours of his day just like once you click and start diving into one of these I have a feeling that uh, it wouldn't stop there for you so I, I got completely derailed I went down the Forda network hole uh, rabbit hole here and just I don't know super cool stuff I mean I spent five years working for a security analytics and logging company and I've spent so much time looking at logs thinking about logs collecting logs and this is essentially you know an alerts creating alerts based on those logs that's essentially what this is so it's just uh, a really cool concept and i'm bummed that the i missed the airdrop even though um it, i think i got, my tokens were allocated for um contributing to open source was i think the reason because i checked some of my accounts nothing and then uh it was actually my github profile that had a balance there so they must have distributed that airdrop based on some diverse 
collection to some, you know, different conditions or whatever. But, uh, yeah. So check it out. If you're interested, they've got the con competition going on. They've got a token and that kind of backs this network. You can run nodes, which presumably are operating these bots. And so if you're into that, maybe you don't want to write bots. You could run a node and earn some of the, uh, some of the, the token there for the network. So yeah, decentralized threat intelligence bot network, super cool stuff. And I got a bunch of other links. There's so much, there's multiple other talks that I looked at that are worth note in the show notes, a bunch of other links. I got a really great book on, um, Uniswap version three development. It's created from a grant. You can check the show notes for that. Some interesting stuff about Twitter polls being gamed by Cardano, someone in the Cardano community, apparently. And um, yeah, check the show notes, uh, wolfdefi.com slash I dash Dgen. Should be able to get there easily from the homepage. I'm publishing them all there. Now, there's a bunch more. We just don't even have time to get into it all. But um, yeah, stay safe out there, people. This week seems safer than last week, and let's hope that you know we did turn a little bit of a, a corner here. And uh, you know, anytime we have less drama to report on, and we can dive deeper into the the things that are going on at IDGen, is a good week for us. Yeah, no doubt. And I think you you noticed the the optimism this week, you know, and it's uh. I don't know. It it feels maybe like we're starting to turn a corner. This stuff has to evolve. And uh, yeah, S- someday yeah. There, there's going to be a look back at all this as the, the golden days of DeFi hacking. And it certainly feels like we're at a pivotal moment here. It's either just going to like continue to rip through or, oh man, there's, there's so much other stuff I wanted to talk about here. Hold on. One other thing before we jump off. Um, there's an awesome talk called the $10 billion problem web three security against coordinated adversaries. And these guys were also analysts from, um, chain analysis. Actually, um, I'm not sure what their jobs were, but I think that's what they did. Um, but they were talking about this tether approval scam that they've been tracking $83 million in a year. These guys made more than 20,000 victims and the, it's fascinating because they're, you know, they track the addresses related to the scam. And uh, this is simply like an approval scam. So they just basically trick you into signing um, a transaction where you approve someone to spend your USDT. Like that's it. They made $83 million in a year, more than 20,000 victims. So be careful what transactions you sign and click on. Make sure that they're coming from the contract you think it is. I know a lot of this sounds like Greek to 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 folks that aren't intimately familiar with crypto, and that's you know a huge reason why people think that this is never going to make it. It's all too complicated and hard, and people can't even. How are you going to manage your own bank if you're getting robbed every day? But um, man, eighty-three million. 
you had to slide that one in there you know the last Sorry, one i know yeah <laughs> yeah we were uh, optimistic but uh i thought that <laughs> one was, was fascinating so anyways there's a bunch more in the show notes i'm gonna we're already an hour so um we should probably just jump off and uh yeah hope you all have a good week and we'll be back for you next week Hunter, are you gonna be back uh, i'm gonna home? be back stateside next week man well safe travels and look forward to chatting with you again on this next week yes hopefully it's another optimistic one be safe everybody talk to you soon